Hello everyone, welcome back to Control-Alt-Delete podcast. Before I introduce today's guest, I just wanted to share some resources related to what's been going on in the news recently and related to this episode topic. It's been a heavy week on the internet, black communities are hurting beyond words and Twitter, like the real world, is a constant stream of pain and anguish and anger. The video of George Floyd, the millions of Amy Coopers and black parents having to explain these horrific realities to their young children. None of this is new and anti-racism activists and many people all around the world have been speaking on this for years, decades, even longer. It's been happening for so, so long and something has to change. If you're wanting to do something and donate, I've put some links in the show notes. There is the official George Floyd Memorial page. There's the Minnesota Freedom Fund, which I've donated to as per Rene Edolodge's tweets. She has recently tweeted that if you are buying her book, Why I'm No Longer Talking to White People About Race, she's asking if you can please match however much you bought the book for to the Minnesota Freedom Fund. If you want to sign a petition and seek justice for George Floyd, there are a few choices, change.org, color of change, we can't breathe and NAACP. I've also put those links in the show notes as well. If you're not in a position to make a donation right now, maybe you can pass on the link to someone who might be able to. So my guest this week is the wonderful Leila Saad. She is a globally respected writer, speaker and podcast host on the topics of race, identity, leadership, personal transformation and social change. She's also the New York Times bestselling author of the book Me and White Supremacy, How to Recognise Your Privilege, Combat Racism and Change the World. Is one of the best resources out there for doing anti-racism work. We recorded this podcast around a month ago and right now, this week, Layla's book has actually sold out on many places online. But please don't let that stop you from seeking it out elsewhere and buying it on ebook or audiobook as well if the stores are running low on stock. It's not a book you read, but a book you do. And we talk about this in the episode. And it's so, so worth it for the person you become on the other side of reading it or doing it. I feel embarrassed for the things that I said before I read this book. I would be well-meaning, but actually be causing harm in, in what I was saying. I would tone police through wanting positivity. And I've definitely been defensive before when having things pointed out to me for the first time or sitting on an all-white panel and being defensive because I didn't organise it. It's an uncomfortable feeling sometimes, realising what you've done and the way you've acted in the past, and you have to work through this discomfort and do the work, which is what Layla's book helps you to do. So please, if you're white and therefore have white privilege, do read, do the work in this book, and then pass it on to all your friends. Right. I think I've been speaking for a long time now. So here is the conversation with Layla. So welcome, Layla Saad, to Control-Alt-Delete. We were going to do this in person, I think. Yeah. And I'm, I'm just glad that we're getting to do it in, in whatever way we possibly can. Yeah, I'm, I'm so excited for this conversation. I know you and I have been wanting to talk for quite a while. 
Um, it's strange circumstances that we're coming together at this time, but everything in its in its timing, I guess. I know. So I think we were in New York at a similar time, weren't yes. we? Maybe last year. Or yes. year. So yeah, I feel like our paths were meant to cross at some point. <laughs> but um, so where are you just uh, firstly, where, whereabouts are you now and, and how are you doing? So I'm home in Qatar, where I live. I'm really thankful, actually, that I just completed my UK book tour just before everything shut down. So I got back from the UK tour for my book and within a week, less than a week, everything was closing up. I remember I was like, oh, when I get back because I'd just done the US tour and then I did the UK tour and I was like, I can't wait to go to the museum and the art galleries and, you know, the spa and do all of this stuff. And it was like, no, it's all <laughs> it's all shutting down. Um, and so we've been at home for about um, two months now. My kids um, are 10 and 5, and they've been uh, learning from home for the last two months. And we've adjusted. You know, it was really hard in the beginning, as it was for everybody, um, to come to terms with what was happening. But we found our way. I think what's a bit um, hard to still grasp is that the kids won't go to school until the next academic year again, um, foreseeably. Mm -hmm. Um, so yeah, it's it's strange times for sure. Definitely, I'm so glad you got to do your book events. Yeah. I know I know that writing can be quite solitary sometimes, but then I know obviously you have a huge, huge um, online community. But I mean, do you really get a lot from those in person yes. meetups as well? Yeah, yeah. It, like you said, right? Like writing is a very solitary activity. Um, And especially with a book like this, you, you know, I had to really, it was a lot of, I call it like doing the emotional labor up front, a lot of Mm -hmm. processing and um, yeah, emotional labor that I did in the process of writing the book itself. So to be able to connect with people who had been, you know, following the work um, in the Instagram challenge, had downloaded the, the book when it was a workbook. And, um, and who were excited about the book and getting to have conversations with people of all races about how this book has impacted them and what it means to them is just like that moment of oh, those hours in the library writing were so worth it because this is exactly what I wanted it to do in the world. Um, and as somebody who has these many you know, mixed identities and speaks from a global perspective, you often feel like you're talking to everybody, but you don't get to necessarily have those in-person moments um, very much. So I was really grateful that I got to do that over a number of weeks, you know, touring. I think mm-hmm. I toured more than 11 cities in the U.S. Um, and then in the U.K., we were in London, in um, Scotland. Um, where was it in Scotland? I think it was Edinburgh, Edinburgh and um, uh, Nottingham and then back to London again. And so, wow. yeah, it was it was really really amazing getting to um, meet people who had um, who were familiar with the work, but it was also great getting to meet people who'd never heard of me, <laughs> and just yeah. you know just heard about this talk and and went to listen to it and and shared you know how how excited that they were that a book like this existed for them to be able to do the work. Totally. Well, I guess I'm speaking to you now as you know you're a new york times best-selling author yeah you have just toured 11 cities i i i came to your work i think when it was the online workbook yeah. first of all and and then i, I just love the book this hard copy book now but i just wondered if we could explain to the listeners who might not be familiar kind of this journey that you've been on to get this work out there because as someone 
I mean, quite geeky about getting messages out there into the world what you did was quite unique wasn't it and quite special in the fact that you galvanized this the hashtag and then you self-published and then now you have traditionally published and it's become this huge success and I just wondered if you could talk a little bit about what that's been like yeah it's it is a very unique um project and I, I remember speaking at so many sort of author dinners and um book book events and saying, you know, I wrote a book in a very millennial way because I essentially wrote it on Instagram to begin with. Um, I have a, you know, on social media, Instagram is the only platform that I use. And in the summer of 2018, I ran this 28-day challenge called Me and White Supremacy, hashtag Me and White Supremacy. Um, To my, at the time, I think I had a community of about... mm, 19,000 followers. And I'd been talking about race and white supremacy uh, for about less than a year. I'd started talking about it in August of 2017, which was when the Unite the Right rally happened in Charlottesville, Virginia. And I wrote an article, Mm -hmm. I published an article called, I Need to Talk to Spiritual White Women About White Supremacy. And it was a letter that I was addressing to the people in my community at the time, because I was a life coach and I was doing you know, this sort of spiritual, soulful work. And I was noticing that that space was very dominated by white women and that the um, conversation in that area was a lot around like changing the world, making the world a better place, empowering women, empowering people. Um, but the topic of race was very absent from that conversation. And so when I saw the images from the Unite the Right rally, it just it just did something to me. And I sat and I wrote, I wrote this article addressing it to these women, you know, the people who were essentially my peers, my colleagues, my clients, you know, my, the people whose books I'd bought saying, you say you want to change the world, but why are we not having a conversation around race and your privilege as white women? Um, what is that about? Mm-hmm. And so that's how I started talking about white supremacy. Prior to that, it wasn't on this path of anti-racism or a conversation around race until that article. So that was August of 2017. And then in June of 2018, the next year, I'd noticed that um, a huge shift had taken place in, in, in my community, at least in my space, where people were n- now more comfortable with having a conversation around race. When I first started talking about race, there was a lot of backlash. You know, many... Um, because the people I was addressing were self-identified, spiritual, liberal, progressive, you know, they really saw them feminists. They really saw themselves as we are not racist. So who is she talking to? Because she can't be talking to us. And so mm-hmm. it was hard having that conversation every day. There was a lot of um, what Robin D'Angelo calls white fragility. Um, but almost a year later, I'd noticed the conversation had shifted and People were now more willing to have that conversation and were now more adept at it and understood that what they had a deeper understanding of what racism meant and what white supremacy meant. And so mm. I was uh, trying, just trying to fall asleep one night and um, was just thinking about how, you know, that shift, what had caused that shift. And I was just wondering, you know, what have they learned about themselves and white supremacy in this time? that makes it now easier for me to have the conversation with them. That was the spark, 
um, of what have you learned about you and white supremacy? It was just curiosity. I wanted to know what they'd learned. And I start writing just some notes on my phone that I thought was just going to be, you know, a single question that I was going to throw, throw out on Instagram. What have you learned about you and white supremacy? But as I got ready to post, I, I, I stopped and thought, well, what is white supremacy? Because Maybe there are people who still don't quite understand what I mean. If I'm going to ask this question, they might not understand what I mean. And so I started writing out these different aspects of white supremacy. So things like white privilege, white fragility, cultural appropriation, um, white centering, white exceptionalism, racist stereotypes, right? And suddenly I had dozens of, of these um, different aspects of white supremacy. And so I realized it was more than an, a single Instagram post and that it was, it was something bigger. And I wanted to kind of ask these questions over a number of days. And so I did a final um, post that, that said, we're going to do a 28-day Instagram challenge. It's called you, you and White Supremacy. We're going to look at what you have learned about you and white supremacy. You know, join me tomorrow. Um, and I went to sleep. And um, woke up the next day and was like, what have I done? <laughs> I, don't, I don't know if this is such a good idea. Um, but I had so many comments underneath that post saying, you know, I'm ready. Like, I'm scared to have that conversation, but I'm ready to have it. And I thought, okay, let's go then. So over the course of 28 days, I walked the people in my community through this um, self-inquiry. And each day I asked a different question. So for day one, you know, the question is, what have you learned about you and white privilege? And I gave a, a simple a simple breakdown of what white privilege is, some examples of what it looked like in practice, and then some, some journaling questions around white privilege. And I asked them to journal in the comments. And we had so many people join in this challenge. And every day, more people would join in. You know, I really thought that people would leave my community, that the conversation was too tough. I have the conversation very directly. But they, um, it, it, every day, more people flocked in, and it's it's continued to to grow. And then around six months later, decided to I published the Instagram challenge as a workbook because I knew that this was a process that was really important, that it would help many many people. And so I turned the challenge into a workbook, expanded it from what it had been, and put it out into the world as a as a free self published workbook and. That also went very viral. Um, within three days, more than 11,000 people had downloaded it. And within six months, almost 100,000 people had, had downloaded it. And, and so with that, you know, with it doing so well so quickly, within about a month of self-publishing, I had already started receiving inquiries from some of the big publishing houses to see if, if I wanted it to turn it into an actual hardcover book. Um, and that's, that's what we did. <laughs> so, wow. so yeah it's amazing the thing is i suppose is it does prove that you know obviously people wanted that and they wanted to learn but also kind of what an amazing communicator and teacher you are because i think there is the way you've done it is it really gets through and i and i know that it's the words and the phrases and the terminology and the tools that you're giving people but i also think you go so much deeper into connecting with someone on a level to say this is a healing journey. Yeah, you know, I think, for, so there are so many um, uh, anti-racism teachers, authors, resources, and we all show up in this work differently. And I, I'm 
a really strong advocate of learning from as many different types of teachers um, in this work, specifically black indigenous people of color who do this work, um, because each one is going to teach you something different and each one is going to approach their work different. Mm. I think what my approach is about is around having a conversation with people on an individual level um, because white supremacy operates at these various levels, right? Institutional, systemic, structural, structural, but also individual. And my personal approach is let me speak to the individual. And I think that I come from that approach because of the background that I come from, which is the personal growth um, and wellness space. That is the background that I have. Like I said, I was a life coach, um, personal growth and self-help and self-improvement is kind of my jam. Um, and so I approach it from that perspective. But, it, you know, at the same time, anti-racism work isn't self-improvement work. It's it's really about it will improve you, but that, that's not the end outcome that we're looking for. The end outcome we're looking for is, you know, so that um, people of color can breathe more easily, can be more safe, can live in the, you know, more fuller expression of their humanity. And that requires white people and people who have white privilege on an individual level to really look at how do I contribute to people of color feeling unsafe? Like, what is it that I do? What are the thoughts and beliefs that I have? What are the actions that I do at my work, in my family, at my job, you know, in my friendship circles, all of these spaces? How do I act and show up in ways that I don't even realize are causing harm? And what can I do to change that? And I think that mm-hmm. for me, that approach gives people, it means that you can't say, well, if white supremacy is this systemic thing and it's about politics and it's about policies and I'm just, you know, this, I, I'm not in that space and I can't affect any change. And I want people to understand, no, like you may not be able to affect change there, but you are probably causing harm just in, as you live your life anyway. So let's start there first. Um, that's the yes, most powerful absolutely. place that you can that you can start because, you know, there are people that you are impacting in ways you don't probably even realize it. Yes, and I think that's why the book does make you go inwards a lot, mm-hmm. and it makes you reflect a lot. And I know that's why the journaling aspect is so powerful in it because it was um, it was an experience, and it was it was uncomfortable at times and the bit that really spoke to me I mean all of it did but the bit about silence and about white silence and how you're not helping by staying silent it's actually very very damaging and right and actually violent and that was a massive wake-up call for me because there is no excuse to read something feel like you're taking it in feel like you're learning but you're you're silent so therefore what are you doing? Right. And yeah, you know, white silence isn't a, a neutral, it's not a neutral uh, base. It's not, it's not, um, you know, people think, well, because I didn't say a racial slur or I didn't attack somebody or I didn't discriminate against somebody. I was just here being quiet. So I, I didn't cause harm. But if you see that somebody is in pain or is um, experiencing any kind of marginalization, and it's because of their race, and you don't say anything, and you're very aware of it, you know, to that uh, sort of got that image of um, uh, an ostrich sticking their head back in the sand, mm. um, you're, you're complicit, 
because you see it happening and and you're aware of what's happening and you do have a voice. And I think some of the um, reasons that I see around, especially around white silence, why people don't want to speak up is, well, I'm an introvert, you know, or I'm um, very sensitive or what if I say the wrong thing or it comes out wrong um, or, you know, if we dig deeper, you know, how will this impact me if I start speaking up? What are people going to think of me? You know, and will that affect my work, my business? Um, what will my friends and family think of me and so on? And and so it's easier to just not speak than to speak. But we have to remember that somebody is still speaking up and it's often people of color. And so mm-hmm. they're having to take the brunt of saying this is unjust, this is unfair, this is not right. Um, and then being called, especially for black women, being called angry being called aggressive, you're never happy, you make everything about race, and so on and so forth. So that act of silence, which is, it's not a, it's not a, an outwardly aggressive act, is still, it's very violent, because like I said, you see what's happening, but you're choosing to hide behind the privilege of, I'm white, so I don't have to say anything. Yeah. And also last night on your Instagram Live, I noticed that you were saying how if you are a white person, you are going to share a post directing to someone who, like yourself, who yeah. has a community where you are talking about these things and you are directing people to you and to comment underneath the post. You are then, yes, you're speaking up great, but you're also directing people to someone who might not want other people who don't, who, who hasn't sort of read your book and therefore you're actually doing harm by that. Yeah. And, you know, I don't actually think that sharing the work of um, black people, people of color, indigenous people is is an act of speaking up. You're you're sharing a you're you're sharing, but you're not speaking up because you're not actually using your own voice. Right. Mm -hmm. Speaking up is, you know, I often get asked by white people, like, when do I know when to speak up and when do I know when to shut up? Right. When is it my space to say something and when do I need to be quiet and actually listen to um, to, to black indigenous people of color. And I would say, like, speak up when it comes to speaking to other white people. When it comes to having the conversation with other white people, that's where you can, you can have that conversation with them. So um, uh, let's ha- have it. Let me, let, me, let me just give you an example of something that often happens in my space is um, I will receive a, a DM from a white person who I don't know, and they've seen something racist going on somewhere in some comment section of some post, right, that I'm unaware of. And they feel that they're speaking up by sending me that post and asking me to speak up. You know, did you know that this is happening? I think, this, I think these people would really benefit from hearing about your work maybe you could share something with them, right? That's not speaking up. Speaking up would be no. that person recognizes something racist is going down there and they can say something. They can have that conversation with, the, with, the, with that person there. Um, instead of saying, Leila, go and have that conversation or instead of asking that person who's being racist to come follow me, because as you're trying to say, right, when they come and follow me, they're coming to follow me with a mindset of like I, I'm I'm either I'm one of the good ones or I don't even believe in this stuff, you know. And they're bringing in like I'm a black Muslim woman. They're coming in with unexamined anti-blackness, unexamined um, Islamophobia. So you're sending somebody to me who could potentially um, 
you know, be, be racially aggressive to me. And so that's not mm-hmm. an act of speaking up either. I think it's very, very important for white people, people with white privilege who are doing their work to really, to really think about, because I talk about being a good ancestor, right? That's, that's the basis of my work. Think about yeah. it. Think about it as it's my responsibility as a good ancestor to do my work, first of all, within me so that um, I show up differently in less harmful ways. And it's also my responsibility to do my work so I can better have conversations with other white people. Because it's, it's one of the things that I'm most appreciative of, and I don't get it a lot in my space. I used to, (laughs) when I I first started talking about race, it was like every day, you know, having to block people and and having very stressful conversations. I don't get that anymore. And I think it's, um, I don't know, I think it's a matter of time. But I also think it's because of the way that I hold my boundaries and um, very clear around, you know, what what will and won't happen in my space. Um, But I sometimes get comments from people who maybe they just started following me and didn't realize just how direct I am in my message. And so maybe Mm -hmm. they'll get upset or they will say something that is asking me to educate them for free or to provide some sort of labor for them. And I'm always grateful when another white person in my community who's clearly doing their work will say, you know what, like this isn't a space for you to ask Layla, that question, I would be happy to have that conversation with you privately. Like, please feel free to DM me or I'm going to DM you and I'm going to explain to you um, why what you're saying is harmful or why, you know, do you know what I mean? Like taking that, taking that burden off of me and seeing it as their responsibility. And that's what really, when we talk about this idea of allyship, part of allyship is seeing the struggle as your own. That it's not something that black, indigenous people of color, that racism is just something that's our problem and we have to deal with it, but that it's everyone's problem. And as a white person, as a person who has white privilege, that it's my job to go and speak with other white people to alleviate that burden. Um, yeah, to, 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 not, to not think that it should all fall on people who look like me to keep having that conversation. Absolutely. And it means as well that everyone can carry on doing the work. Right. Yeah. I'm, I'm very clear who, on who I am talking about. You know, it's not my job to speak to all white people. You know, it's, it's just not. My job or what I choose to do is to speak to the people who, who believe that they want to create a world or help create a world in which um, black indigenous people of color are not um, subjected to racism and that we all get to live in that reality that we say we want, right? Where, you know, we don't see color and everyone um, is treated the same. Like that's the desire that they have. And they are, even though they may be scared, confused, all of those feelings, but they're willing to start walking the path of the, you know, anti-racism work. That's who I'm talking to. I'm not talking to anybody that I need to convince that racism is real. Sometimes I, when I, I interviewed Rachel um, Cargill as well, mm-hmm. recent, well, it's like a year ago now. And I, I asked her about the boundaries that she sets because keeping those boundaries must be really, really important for you to carry on, you know, having the energy to even talk mm. about this stuff with people. 
it's it's everything. It's um, this work, and and this is how I was when I first started out in this work. This work can destroy you. When we say racism kills, we don't just mean because you might get shot by the police or you know hung from a tree or you know it, it it's it kill it kills you in 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 big and small ways every single day and Rachel knows this I know this right having conversations every day with our large community of um of people of people in our communities who are many people who are white who have white privilege who want you know <laughs> want a individually uh, custom tailored experience of anti-racism work who want their individual questions answered who um, often from n- not having examined their unconscious racist thoughts and beliefs will gaslight you or ask you to prove it or, you know, all kinds of things that can come up every single day. And I didn't know how to take care of myself in the beginning in this work. And I really, I always credit my mentor, Dr. Frantonia Pollins, who taught me about how to have boundaries um, and how to do this work. Because I really want to do this work. This is the work that calls me. But I had to, I had to decide very early on that I wasn't going to do it in a way that would kill me from stress and anxiety and burnout. Um, and so mm-hmm. I am very, you know, firm on my boundaries, and that can be hard for for people with white privilege to understand. I think it's hard. I think it's also it's often hard for white women specifically to understand. And I think this may be an issue around as women in general, that we have like fears around asserting strong boundaries and maybe being seen as a, you know, just like overly masculine or a bitch or something like that, right? Like there's that, but then there's also racism is a part of it. Like how can you as a black woman say, you're not going to serve me? Like, I don't get it, you know? (laughs) So Mm -hmm. it's often very confronting for people to get it. And part of my personal anti-racism work, like my, me, Layla, just me within myself, my anti-racism work is to defy the ways in which white supremacy says I have to show up as a black woman. And so I do have very strong boundaries and I am very clear in my intentions. And I am very clear that I'm responsible for the energy that I bring into my space. Everyone who's here is responsible for the energy that they bring into the space. If you can't be respectful of boundaries and how you show up, then you you don't have a right to be here. It's not, it, it's a privilege to get to be in a space um, and learn. And that privilege can be revoked at any time um, because you have to be, like you said, like how do you, you're, you're questioning, like how do myself and Rachel show up? We have to just be so firm in, um, in, in our level of self-love that my... Mm-hmm self-love as a black woman comes before your needs as a white person. So if at any point your needs of me, that your desire, what you want from me causes me to self-betray, causes me to act smaller, causes me to um, self-sacrifice or martyr myself in any way, then you have to go. 
you can't be here. You can go learn from somebody else, but you're not going to learn. You're not going to learn from me. Um, and and that is um, something that I have had to learn over over time of doing this work. And conti- I continue to learn. Yes, because yeah. the the bit in the book as well about tone policing mm-hmm. was uh, was really eye opening. Because I knew I knew what tone policing meant before I read your book, but I didn't actually realize how subtle and mm-hmm. and actually how dangerous some yeah. comments were so you could have someone who again is in well-meaning in yeah. in quotes something like oh but you know we could talk about this in a positive way right or and and trying to change how someone else wants to speak and i and i realized the da- like the how damaging that sounds by reading your book it's and it's you're so right that white supremacy operates in very subtle levels and one of my aims with this book is to help people with white privilege develop a more critical way of thinking about their everyday experiences and things that they see as normal or that's the norm to understand no it's often also um informed by white supremacy so we're talking about tone policing for example right and I often got requests of, if you could just say it in a nicer way, then maybe we would listen to you, um, which mm-hmm. is really saying, look, our white-centered way of communicating is the correct way of communicating. And what that often looks like, that Eurocentric way of communicating is um, uh, delete any sort of anger you may have or any kind of strong, passionate feelings you may have and just convey the information. And... I'm saying, how can we talk about racism without emotion? It's not, it's, racism is not an intellectual experience. It's not a mental experience. Well, it, it is, but it's, it's an emotional, physical experience. And so when you get a black woman's anger as part of her communication, you're getting the full breadth and depth of what racism does. And if you're unable to hold that, then there's something wrong with how you're able to hold your own anger, first of all, and that mm-hmm. white supremacy has cut you off from having empathy for somebody else's pain, right? And so, and, yeah. and, and the reality of it, of it is, I actually, you know, often do communicate in, this, in a very, what would, you know, quote unquote, be said kind and, and, and compassionate ways. And that doesn't stop me from experiencing racism. It's not a protection, mm-hmm. right? It, this exactly, idea, yeah. Right, yeah. this idea of respectability. If you show up in this more respectable, kind, nice way, then you will be protected from racism. And it's like, no, that's not even true. So I could say it's shouting. Yeah, it's not even, it's not even <laughs> part true. of the conversation. Right. <laughs> right, so so this is, you know, something that I'm, with this uh, uh, conversation around tone policing, it's really about getting um, white people to understand it operates on so many different ways. You don't, you actually don't even have to say if you could just use a different tone, you could be looking at the way a, and I'll use myself as an example, a black woman moves and operates and think I wouldn't do it like that. Who does she think she is to do it like that? Right. And, and sort of judgments of that kind. And then that informs how you treat me and how you treat people who look like me. So it, it operates in very subtle ways. And I really want people to examine what they say, what they don't say, what they're unconsciously thinking. And I, I, what, some, something that I often hear from people who do this work is the more that they you know, go through the process, the more aware they become of thoughts that they didn't even realize that were very racist. And as they go through the process, they're like, am I, wait, am I becoming more racist? Because I'm more aware 
of my racist thoughts and beliefs. But it's like, no, you're not more racist. You're just aware of what was already there. And, you know, to tie this all together, I think it's very important for people to understand like race, racism has nothing to do with your intention. You, we have all been conditioned into a um, into the system of white supremacy. And white supremacy says that people who are white, who look white, are superior to people of other races. And so that informs everything. It informs me as a black person. That's the work that I do. And I said I do my own anti-racism work. My own internalized oppression as a black woman has taught me growing up white people are superior to you. And so I've acted in ways throughout my life that confirm that I am inferior to white people. People are su- white people are superior to me. Um, and part of taking back my power is examining those thoughts that I have, racist thoughts that are towards my own self, and then acting in defiance of them, acting in ways that um, reflect the truth, which is the truth is that no, no person of any race is superior to any person of any other race. So I have as much right to be here as anyone else. I have as much right to take up space as anyone else. I have as much right to any form of abundance as anyone else and, and so on and so forth. So if I have to do that work and I'm black, right, definitely people who are white and have white privilege have a lot of work to do. Yeah. It's it's interesting that we learn from a young age what the male gaze is and like what, mm-hmm. you know, that means. And whilst I read your book, I, I just... I just realized something the about white the gaze. white gaze, oh, the yeah. white gaze. And and it's like with Rene Edo Lodge's book where she mm-hmm. unpicks the fact that most white people think white is like neutral yes. and takes people out of their own perception of the world and basically says, you know, even that objective sort of language, I think, would would change someone forever. Yeah. And, and white isn't objective. And like, it's not about the actual color of your skin, right? It's the, it's about the the system that has been set up around all of us, and the consciousness that is, that we have that we are steeped in that says that white is superior. That people who look white, who have white features, who speak in a white way, who and so on and so forth, that that is superior. It's better. It's of higher value. That's not a neutral stance to come from. That's a stance of superiority. I feel like my life divided into like before reading your book and af- mm. after reading your book. But with your tour, I mean, did you did you find that actually like a lot of your events were quite similar and like similar questions kept coming up? Or did you find that different places asked you different questions? Like, was there anything that just jumped out at you that you found quite interesting about, about the tour? Yeah, so one of the things that was really important to me with my tour was um, as often as possible to actually be interviewed by another black woman. And that was because I wanted to ha- to make sure that we were having, um, uh, first of all, that any space that I went into, that people who were black, who were people of color in that space felt affirmed and seen and understood that this work is for you. Like I'm the majority of the time speaking to people who have white privilege, but the reason I'm speaking to them is for you and for us. And so it was really important for me as often as possible to be interviewed by somebody who looked like me. And so we could have a very um, direct conversation, a more relaxed conversation, um, a conversation where I didn't have to kind of like, you know, um, code switch Mm -hmm. or anything like that. Um, 
you know, that's a, that's just one of the things of white supremacy and the white gaze that we constantly have to be aware of is when we're in spaces where we're being interviewed by someone who's, who's white, that it's going to be a different kind of conversation than if it's somebody who, who looks um, like us. But in terms of the kinds of, and sorry, I will say this as well. I, it meant so much to me to be able to be in halls and bookstores in, you know, churches and, and event spaces where you have two outspoken black women on stage and a, 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 you're speaking to a crowd of people who are largely white and you're having a very direct conversation about white supremacy. Like it gave me chills every time that, you know, mm. if we go back decades ago, this wouldn't have been possible. And it really, yeah. it really humbled me to be in those spaces, to be able to show up and speak with my voice without tone policing my own self, without fearing um, that something's going to happen to me um, because this conversation is such a part of the mainstream now. Um, so yeah. that was hugely humbling for me. And I'm very grateful for the black people and people of color who've come before me, first of all, who've made it possible for that to happen because that wasn't possible before. But in terms of some questions that often come up, I'll tell you one question that always comes up and it's around the idea of white exceptionalism, um, which is something I cover in the book. So this idea that white supremacy is something those other white people do not me. I'm one of the good ones. Um, and people having that realization as they did the work and they get to the day on white exceptionalism that they had been operating under this idea that, yes, 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 I get that racism is real. I get that, um, you know, it's harmful, it causes harm. And I get that I have white privilege, but I am still the exception to the rule because I am one of the good ones. And I think I heard you on another podcast actually say that it, one of your sort of pet peeves um, for a lot of people is like when a white person will call other white people out as if they are not a white person. Right. You have to include yourself in that because you may not do what, you know, oftentimes it, it's in situations where, they, where somebody who's white has actually done something that's very like aggressively racist and they just think, oh, white people, they'll say like white people are the worst. I'm like, but you're also white. And you have to recognize that just because their racism looks worse doesn't mean that your racism doesn't cause harm. That's a, that's a big one, especially because the crowd that I speak to are these, like I said, spiritual, progressive, liberal, um, self-proclaimed, you know, one of the good ones. Like this is a hard one to wrap their head around. And I know that many people often actually come into purchasing the book because they think they're one of the good ones. That's why they buy the book in the first place, because that's what a good white person would do. And so, so they start doing the work, but kind of in the back of their mind, there is a kind of feeling of self-satisfied. <laughs> I'm doing it because I'm one of the good ones. And my process really will, will make you dig so deep into yourself that, you know, you have to see parts of yourself where you thought something that you were doing was, like I said, neutral or didn't have any impact or wasn't that bad or wasn't even a thing. And you have to see oh, I've been judging those other white people because they show up in these ways as that's real racism and I've got, you know, racism light. But m mine is just as bad as theirs. It just looks different. Yeah. Yeah. Because I know that when I, I did a live episode with Rennie um, when her book, Why I'm No Longer Talking to White People came out and when someone in the audience put their hand up and said, what can white people do? 
um i could tell and she also says that it it wasn't the best question and also i felt like she had just written a whole book on it and someone's putting their (laughs) hand up and saying that um so i are you kind of hoping that that stuff that putting your hand up and asking that question just goes away well i don't know how you could you know do the book so there's first of all i always say like me and white supremacy is not a book that you read it's a book that you do so if you have bought the book and have read it you're likely to ask that question because you didn't do the work you you read it you got the concepts you kind of maybe understood it on an intellectual level um but you haven't taken it inside of yourself and done the work inside of yourself when you do the work inside of yourself, it becomes very obvious about what I need to do, right? You, it becomes very mm-hmm. obvious that, yes, yes. that, that anti-racism isn't about um, uh, a checklist of things that I need to do to solve racism, that anti-racism is a lifelong practice that is about the way that I think and show up every single day in my life um, to the people uh, who are around me, first of all, like the people I have influence over, who are white and people of other races and and then wider than that you know people who i can impact you cannot do the book and ask that question yeah. something has gone horribly wrong if that, if that <laughs> happens um because that means that you're still seeing it as something other than you and something where you need to come and um uh, you know, save black people and people of color. That you that you are this benevolent savior, and we have a we have a whole day in the book around white saviorism. So that shouldn't even yeah, come up yeah. anyway, right? But racism isn't something that black people and people of color need to be rescued from. It's something that we need people who have white privilege to dismantle within themselves, and then to dismantle in their communities and in their systems. So this idea of what am I supposed to do? It, it's I can I can just imagine the look of frustration and tiredness on Rennie's face when that question came up because, like you said, she's written a whole book about it. Um, there's a there's often a desire for, um, like I said earlier, for white people to feel that, especially black, that black women should give white women a very custom tailored response and approach to how to do every single thing. At some point, you have to take responsibility. Like at some point when the information has been presented to you, when a process for transformation has been given to you um, and that opportunity for change has been presented to you, at some point you have to take responsibility for it. At some point you have to stop expecting to be spoon-fed and given all the answers and really see yourself like I said, like allyship is seeing yourself in the movement and not seeing yourself as somebody who's coming to save um, people of other races. Yes. And and like you just said about doing the book and not reading the book, I feel mm-hmm. like this is a book you do, yes, but you also, it's a lifelong, yeah. a lifelong doing, you know, yeah. it, it's, this is the very start reading the book, if anything. Um, so anyway, thank you so, so much for, for chatting today. Well, I'm so glad we are connected and I'm, I am really grateful for this tool of social media that allows us to connect with different people, allows us to provide different um, educational resources and and to use spaces like this in a way that maybe they were not intended in that way, but we can make them be that way, right? <laughs> and we see a lot yeah. of, we see, we do see a lot of work happening in the anti-racism uh, space online. And it's always important to remember that you have to take that into your life as well, into your physical lived life as well. <laughs>